This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Well, we are on quite a journey through the book of Colossians. We opened with studying about a man named Epaphras, and he was the one that founded this church. And he, it, so this church wasn't founded by Paul, unlike most of the churches that we read about in the New Testament. And Epaphras learns about Christ and takes the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ home to a little nowheresville place called Colossae. And neither you nor I would have ever heard of Colossae or the Colossians if it hadn't been for Epaphras founding the church there and Paul writing them. It would just be some nerd archaeologist somewhere in the dirt that actually heard of this place. But we got to hear them because of the faithfulness of Epaphras. So Paul is writing them this letter, and he opens up with this beautiful prayer, and he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God's word. And he prays that they would bear fruit. And he prays that these together would help them come to know not just God's word, but God himself. And God's word is the place that we can turn to to know him. I love this little silly comic strip where someone says, I wish I could hear God's voice aloud. And in this comic strip, Jesus responds, read the Bible out loud, and you hear God's voice out loud. Scripture is so vitally important. And as we grow as men and women of God, the value of the Bible grows in us. And as it grows in us, we begin to memorize Scripture, and suddenly it comes to life in a way that we never could have understood before. Now, we just lost Queen Elizabeth II, but her predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I, way back when, came into power immediately after Bloody Mary. Does anyone know anything about Bloody Mary? Other than that they made a drink out of her name. Well, Bloody Mary wanted to crush the Protestant Reformation. So we're Protestants. Unless you're Catholic and you love Jesus, you're probably a Protestant. And she wanted to crush the Protestant Reformation. So she came in, and instead of being diplomatic, she just burned 280 people at the stake. Now, with Bloody Mary's death, her half-sister, Elizabeth II, or Elizabeth I, took the throne. And at her coronation, she made an appointment, a point in the ceremony that a, a part of the coronation, they brought her an open Bible. And she took it in both hands, and she pressed it to her heart, and she said to all of the kingdom that was there waiting, this book has ever been my chief delight. And led by the word of God, she did incredible things during her tenure as queen. Scripture is something that, as you grow in the Lord, it becomes your chief delight. Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, talking about God. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. We read scripture with reverence 
Because the scriptures are the difference between life and death. This is how we come to know Jesus. We read scripture with open hands of obedience because it is God's authoritative word that corrects us, that encourages us, that rebukes us, that teaches us how to live in a way that pleases him. And we read scripture with affection because it's not just a light to our path, it's a warmth to us on the worst of days. Through God's word, God expresses his love to us. Thomas Watson once, read, once quoted, think in every line that you read that God is speaking to you. Jesus talks about this field. It's just a parable. It's a story. But he talks about this field that a man found a treasure in the field. He's like digging and boom, except he has a problem. He doesn't own the field. So he goes and he sells everything he owns so that he can go and buy the field and rightfully own the treasure. If I could use that as an analogy, that treasure is Jesus Christ. That's the treasure that when we uncover it, it's worth, Jesus is worth giving our whole life away to. He's worth sacrificing every one of our dreams for. He's worth sacrificing all of our day-to-day decisions for. We are giving our lives to Jesus Christ to be the king over our lives. And he's so worth it because he's that treasure. And the field where we find that treasure, where we find Christ, is God's word. As we take a look in Colossians tonight, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to see that teaching God's word is the means of how he shepherds his church. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 24. Right now, Paul, because he has been teaching the Bible, has been arrested and transported, actually through this really harrowing event, to Rome. And he's made it to Rome, and he is a prisoner. Why? Because he taught God's word. Because he was pushing against the culture. And so he's a prisoner. He's in chains. And he's writing this letter to the Colossians. And he's writing this letter because Epaphras, the one who founded this church, has come to him saying that there is problems, there's a heresy in the church, and they have to deal with it. So Paul writes this letter, he opens with this beautiful prayer, and then he gives this, this view of Jesus. How do you correct bad theology? You understand Jesus correctly. How do you deal with depression or anxiety? How do you deal with, with life being out of sync? We understand Jesus correctly. Everything comes back to that. That is the core heart of the book of Colossians is understanding who Jesus is. And we covered that last week. And now on the heels of who Jesus is, he is preeminent over all things. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. He is the creator and through all all things, through him were created. This is where we pick up. And Paul is now gonna talk about his calling under that Jesus. Let's start in verse 24. Now I... Rejoice in my sufferings. <laughs> what? What do you mean you rejoice in your sufferings? Paul is in chains. He doesn't, he's not getting three square meals a day. He doesn't have a nice warm blanket. He's cut off from his friends, his family, the culture that he knows well. He's been taken where he doesn't want to go, and he's in chains right now. And he is rejoicing in his sufferings for your sake. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's rejoicing because he finds joy in suffering for God's people, for God's church. Now, many times tonight, I'm going to say the church. Now, I don't mean living word church. Our church is awesome, but it's not the only church. God's church, God's people of believers that, that love God's word, that share the sacraments together, like this is all over the world, in every tongue, in every nation, all over Homa, Louisiana, the United States, the world. And so when I say the church, I mean capital C, all over the world church. And Paul is joyful about suffering for Christ's church. And this is beautiful because Paul's never even met them before. He's never even been to Colossae. He's only heard about them. And yet, he, like we read in chapter 1 earlier, he prays regularly, often for them. He hurts for God's people. And then we get this really interesting phrase. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, I went to like five commentaries to figure out what that meant. So I'm going to give you the best I've got. And I think it makes sense. And I'll do my best to make it make sense for you. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let's begin with what it's absolutely not. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is not saying that what Jesus did at the cross was not sufficient. It didn't do enough. It wasn't good enough. It's not saying that Jesus went 90% of the way and we have to go the other 10 and kind of meet him there. That is not what it's saying at all. If you have read 15 through 23, you know that Paul has already made clear that everything Jesus has done has been more than enough, has been absolutely sufficient. Everything that Jesus did at the cross was perfect, complete, and total. The only contribution that we make in salvation is the sin that we bring, which makes salvation necessary. That's it. That's all we bring to salvation. We didn't have some great philosophical brainstorm where we're like, I get it. Now I understand that I should pick Jesus. No, Jesus picks us and grabs a hold of us in our sin. There's nothing that we bring to this. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives grace to us. So it's not that we have to take part somehow in our salvation. What it does mean, if you look at this verse, it kind of pairs up Paul saying, my flesh, with his body. And his body is the church that we've been talking about. Paul is giving his physical body. He is suffering for Christ's spiritual body. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So what does it mean that there is something lacking? Follow with me. I don't want to lose you, but it's really interesting. As long as there is an enemy who hates God's church, there will always be attacks against the church. Think about Jesus. The very people that were crying out Hosanna on one day, a handful of days later, were crying out, crucify him. Jesus was under an attack by the enemy. And the enemy, I had no idea that actually what looked like defeat in the cross was actually Jesus' victory. 
But there will always be attacks against his church. And every expansion of evil creates a void. That something has to stand against that evil. It creates a void that's an absence of Christness. And this push of evil creates this empty space, this need for God's representative, for representatives of Jesus to stand in the gap, to be the light in the darkness against the evil. And those representatives have to step into that void. They have to endure suffering and endure persecutions. Because it's the believers being steadfast in their faith in those times of crushing pressure that exemplifies Jesus the most. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. Let's actually turn there together. 2 Corinthians, keep your thumb in Colossians, but 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. I want to read this together. If you're looking for it, cut your Bible in half. Cut the right half in half. And you should land somewhere in the Gospels. Follow Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, and then you're going to find Corinthians. If you find 1 Corinthians, keep going. You're close. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a verse worth memorizing. Get this tattooed in reverse on your forehead so when you see yourself, you can read it straight. It's good stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. And this is the same Paul writing. And he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. It's the same language as we're reading in Corinthians. Paul is suffering physically on behalf of Christ's spiritual body, the church. So let me give you an example. Paul right now is suffering under the Roman emperor Nero. Have you heard of Nero before? Yes? Awesome. Nero, who set Rome on fire, and when everybody got mad about it, he blamed the Christians. And he wanted to make sure that people really, really thought the Christians did it, so he executed punishment on the Christians as if they did. So he was lighting them as torches in the circus, and he was having them torn apart by dogs. It's under Nero that Paul is in chains. It'll be under a direct order from Nero that Paul will be beheaded in the coming days. And so it's under Nero that is creating this void, this pressing darkness, this need for Christ's people to stand up and do something different, for Christ's people to stand up and not be moved. And it's because of Christians singing hymns as they're burned alive that Christianity spread like wildfire. And it's because Christians wouldn't back down no matter how tortured they were. And Christianity spread like wildfire. Nero stomped on a grease fire and it scattered Christianity everywhere. Remember I mentioned Bloody Mary. 
Again, evil is making forward motion and it creates this cavity, this vacuum, this need for God's people to step up and to be light. And so whenever we're reading this sort of cryptic phrase about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it's talking about that people are giving themselves, they're giving their lives to stand in the gap to be Christ, to suffer the way Jesus suffered in these dark times. They were sacrificially pouring out their own physical lives, filling what was lacking on behalf of Christ's spiritual body, that is the church. As an example, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, the disciples are brought in and they're beaten. And the Sanhedrin says, do not preach Jesus anymore and throws them out. And they're all beaten and bloodied. And it says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer on behalf of Christ's name. Let's go back to Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Minister, this is someone who, this is another word for like a servant. It's someone who executes the commands of a leader, of a king. So Paul is feeling the weighty responsibility that he is actually Executing, He's being obedient to God's instructions in being a steward. A steward is a manager. It's an overseer of someone else's property. Now, if any of you know me, you know I have like way too many kids. Now, imagine I took you with me to Disney World. And my wife and I were like, we want to go and jump on the rides, but I've got this one kid that's too small to do it. And I'm like, here, take my kid. I'll be back in a few hours. And you're like, huh? Hey, don't worry, my kids are all made of rubber. They bounce. I know. <clears throat> so now you have responsibility. You are stewarding my little kid, which means that when, when mealtime comes around and this kid is crying for food, it's on you, buddy. And whenever people are bumping and smacking against you in the crowd, it's up to you to make sure that my kid's safe. You are stewarding, you're caretaking. And I hope that just because you like me and my kid is cute, I hope that you would take that responsibility very, very seriously. And when I come back, my kid would be in the same condition that when I left. You're allowed one bruise below the head. They've already lost enough ACT points under my watch. Paul feels a heavy responsibility to take care of this growing infant of God's church. And they need to be nourished with the milk of the word. And they need to be stretched with accountability. And they need to be grown. They need to have a mirror reflected back on them. They need encouragement. They need correction. They need straight up rebuke sometimes. A kick in the butt like what we prayed about. God's church is on his shoulders. Now, it's not through his power, just like we read back in verse 11. But he feels this weight to care for God's church. And how does he steward God's church? 
How does he feed it? How does he protect it? How does he keep it clean? What does it say right here? It says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. How does he care for it? How does he feed it? How does he protect it? How does he keep it clean? He teaches the word of God faithfully. Right here, this valuable book that Queen Elizabeth held to her chest in front of her coronation or in front of all of her subjects. Right here, he teaches the word of God. And what does he teach? He teaches the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed. He teaches the word of God. There's a man in my life named Nat Yoakum. It'd be so cool if you could meet him someday, but he's a missionary in China, so it probably won't be too likely. But when I first took my first, first took my first full-time youth ministry job in Oklahoma, he called me to go to lunch, and we sat down over hamburgers, and he looked me straight in the face, and with absolutely straight face, he goes, he goes, Dominic, do you love these teenagers? I was like, uh, Nat, I've been here for two weeks. I mean, honestly, no, I don't. I want to grow into that, but I, I, I don't. And every Thursday, Nat Yoakum would take me out to lunch, and we'd have hamburgers at the same place. And every Thursday, he would check in on me and how I was doing. He would give me encouragement. He would give me insight of how the youth group was going. He would give me ways of mediating with the pastor he would ask me hard questions. We would study scripture together. We would wrestle with the deep things of the word of God. And I had no idea what he was doing. And yet every week, Nat Yoakum, just a few years older than me, a couple years down the road in marriage, was discipling me and teaching me wisdom and teaching me how to turn back to God's word over and over again and how to have finesse with my pastor and have, have love for students. Nat Yoakum discipled me with the word of God. And I wonder how many of you could actually think of even one name in your life that's just a couple years down the road, a couple steps down the path of life that has taken the time to disciple you. Because there is a gross, dark vacuum in this generation of teenagers caring to teach the word to each other. Because I could flip the question around and ask you the same question. How many of you feel the pressure and the call and the joy to look for someone else and disciple them? A younger sibling, someone in, in the youth group that's a new Christian, someone at school, I don't know who it is. That's between you and God. But it, it's time that, that we begin to pass the word of God down. Do you know that when you die, Everything that you know just vanishes. It's gone unless you passed on your knowledge to somebody else. There is a reason that back in Deuteronomy, Moses was like hammering them over and over and over again. Teach your kids. When you're walking on the road, teach your kids. When you have a holiday and they ask you why we do things, teach your kids. Constantly be putting the word back in front of them. Put the word of God on your doorposts. Wear it on your forehead. These are metaphors. They took it literally. Constantly be teaching the next generation. Be in a constant movement of passing God's word and the understanding of God's word to someone else. And you know what happened? The generation that died off 
after that, they didn't teach their kids. And they fall into this terrible season of the book of Judges where the word of God vanishes and no one knows how to worship him anymore. No one knows who he is anymore, let alone how to put their faith in him. Because they didn't teach their kids. And Elevate, I'm calling you to a higher standard tonight. It's time that you stop living for you so much. It's time that you start caring about somebody else. Yep, your spiritual walk, hey, I prayed last night. Oh, good, I'm glad you prayed last night. Who did you pray with? Some of you are just excited to pat yourself on the back when you open your Bible once a week. Some of you are like, feel like you're doing a great job showing up on Elevate on Wednesday nights. And I'm glad you're here. But mature Christians reproduce mature Christians. And if you're not actually discipling someone, pouring into someone, taking God's word and sharing it with someone else, you are still a baby Christian. And that's okay. That's why we're here is to grow. But you need to have a goal. You need to be praying like, Lord, who are you calling me to disciple? To have a burger with once a week. To make one FaceTime once a week. Who are you calling me to have a Bible study with on a regular basis? Who are you calling me to pray for every single day? Who is it? How do we steward God's church? How do we feed God's church? How do we protect it? And how do we keep it clean? We teach God's word. Who are you one step ahead of? Who can you begin something small with? Practical, sustainable, repeatable. Colossians 1.26, let's keep going. So we steward with God's word. Next, God's kingdom is expanded by his word. Colossians 26. What is it that he's teaching? The word of God fully known, verse 26. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Oh, if you've read the Old Testament, there was a lot of people in the Old Testament. And they had these promises that they could hold on to. Promises like Genesis chapter 3, that there is going to come one who's going to defeat the tempter. That somehow through Abraham's family, all the world is going to be blessed. That through Daniel, there's going to be the son of man. He's going to look human, and yet he's going to reign with an everlasting kingdom sitting beside God himself as God himself. And they hung on to these things. And yet all of these were these, these bleak puzzle pieces. It's like handing you one piece of a puzzle and saying, what's the whole picture? I don't know. It's just blue. And so they have these puzzle pieces, and they're like, I've got it. I'm hanging on to this with faith. I don't know what it's a part of, but I'm hanging in there because I trust my God and I trust his promises and they looked forward to God putting the pieces together so they could see something bigger than themselves, bigger than their one puzzle piece. There's this mystery that's hidden for ages and it's hidden for generations. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, and then jump into 13. You don't have to turn there, just pay attention. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. I've got my puzzle piece and I'm putting my faith in a real and living God that doesn't change. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Like God blessed them. He recognized them. He saved them based on their faith. 
Verse 13, these all died in faith. So they had their faith until they were dead, until they were dead. But not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. So they knew that they didn't fit, that they were God's people. And they would see God's promises, and it's like seeing them from far away. But they died believing God, having never seen those promises. And Paul is pumped because he gets to be a minister of the mystery revealed. He gets to turn the puzzle box around and go, boom, Jesus, he's it. He's the son of man. He's the one who's going to crush the head of the tempter. Through him, all the nations will be blessed. He's coming through the tribe of Judah. He, will be, he was born a virgin. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. He's the descendant of King David who will rule forever. He is the one that will be cut off after 40 weeks of days, or 40 weeks of years. It'll be him that will not see destruction, but resurrect back to life. Paul gets to be that announcer. And he is pumped about it. Because 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Those are the people that are set apart by God to be holy. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. So there you go, Christ. He's the center of the picture. And this mystery is being revealed. And here is a bend of the mystery they weren't expecting. The Jews could not wrap their minds around Christ, not just being for Jews, but being for everyone else too. You see, at the, at the throne room of God when we worship, there will be every skin color, there will be every language, there will be every nation represented every social, whatever. In every way that we're different, those people, we, all of us, will be there because the promises are no longer just for the Jews. Through Jesus, this mystery is revealed and Paul gets to take this mystery outside of those who thought it was just for them. You know, I think sometimes we become the gatekeepers for Jesus. I think sometimes we look around the cafeteria and we're, and we're like, no, mm -mm. Jesus really isn't for them. Nah. I think sometimes that we're in Walmart and we get to the cashier and we're like, oh, no, Jesus is not for them. I think some of you guys look across the room and elevate and you're like, nope, not for them. I think we can sometimes see ourselves as the gatekeepers. And for so long, the Jews were so self-righteous, they were pretty sure that they were it. And yet Paul is excited to say that Jesus is for everyone and anyone who would believe. He's not just stuck at home anymore. In Jesus, this mystery is revealed. It is Jesus. It's Jesus. Ephesians 1.9 says that it's in him that we have redemption through his blood. Not just the Jews, but everyone. And you in here tonight can have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery. There's that word again. The mystery of his will. It's Ephesians 1.9. Such a great verse. 
So Jesus is the gem, the cover, the uncovered jewel. You have to understand, this word of God is a mine, like a gold mine, except the whole mountain is made of gold, and we're searching for the gem that the mountain stands on, and it's Jesus. That just came to me. Sorry if that didn't land. But Jesus' squad has people from everywhere. And how is Jesus revealed? Is through the teaching of his word. So how is the church stewarded? Through the teaching of his word. How is Jesus revealed? Through the teaching of his word. I think I was 17. And my parents took me a trip back to my hometown, Burbank, California. And Burbank is actually sort of like a, I don't know, it's sort of an attachment to Hollywood. And then right over the mountains is L.A., just to kind of give you an idea of the map. And so kind of being born in Burbank, we had a lot of friends that were sort of just in a part of the Hollywood industry, as my dad was. And one of our friends uh, was named Michael. And Michael worked at Warner Brothers Studios. And so while I was there, Michael took me to Warner Brothers. And it was so cool. I got to walk past all the tourists in their little train. Oh, hi. You know, and then we got to walk right into the locked doors. Oh, hi. You know, and then we go right in sort of like the inner sanctum of the animation part. And Michael's job was that he would mathematically, with like a card and a pencil, he would line up the verbal sounds of a person's voice with the motions of the cartoon character's mouth. That was his job. Someone has to sit down and mark all that out to line up the frames. And that was his job. And I'll tell you, one of the coolest phrases in the English language is, he's with me. The phrase, he's with me, gets you into crazy places that no one else gets to go. The phrase, he's with me, with me, gets you backstages. He's with me gets you into the most fun, exciting storytelling opportunities. And so I was with Michael, and I got to be under the umbrella of he's with me. And many times, acting as the gatekeepers for the gospel, we forget the joyous phrase of pulling somebody else in and saying, no, 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 he's with me, she's with me. We spend so much time saying, no, I don't think that person really wants Jesus. Jesus is really not for them. Instead of actually going and meeting them and striking up conversation to get to know them, to get to know their world, to actually care enough about them to get to know them and to wait and pray and look and be bold about the Jesus that has saved our lives so that we can stand before Christ, not alone, but with our arm around someone saying, he's with me. She's with me. Don't you remember the story of the Pharisees? Jesus is eating with uh, not the Pharisees. He's eating with the people that we would look down on. He's eating with the people that we don't even want to be around. And Jesus is like right in the middle, and he's teaching them God's word, and people's lives are being changed around him. Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors rubbing elbows just being with one of the guys. Like, that wasn't it. He wasn't, like, cracking the same jokes. That wasn't why he was there. He's in the middle of the table, and lives are being transformed around him. But the Pharisees all looked down on him. And Jesus is in the business of saying, no, no, he's with me. Right there at Jesus' last moments, he's on the cross. He's being crucified with the worst of society. 
And Jesus was not going out empty-handed. And he looks at the guy on the right and says, no, you're going with me, buddy. You're going to be with me in paradise today. He's with me. It's amazing how we snub people so often. We, Christians, light of the worlds, salt of the worlds. I think we need a little bit of conviction in our hearts to start loving a little bit more to start speaking truth a little bit more, to start loving people a little bit more. How do we reveal Christ? We teach the word. Colossians 1.28. So the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, we have so much hope. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So using the word of God, they warn and they teach. Did you know that the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus saves you? That Jesus saves? Because if you're talking to someone, you say, it's so awesome. I've got good news for you. Jesus saves. Jesus saves from what? I'm not feeling a need. You see, if someone's drowning, they feel a need. If someone's sitting on the beach rubbing some tan lotion on themselves, they're not really feeling like they have a need to be saved. And they throw them a life preserver, and they're like, I don't need that. No, the gospel begins with, there is a holy God, and we are all under sin. And addicted and enslaved to sin, we are under the wrath of holy God. And that wrath manifests in hell. And there's nothing that we can do about it. Except that holy God loves you so much that he gave his only son so that while and when you experience your guilt and you are looking for a savior because you can't do it yourself, you can look to Jesus. Because God loved you so much that he sent his son. That's the gospel. And if you will believe in him, if you'll repent from your sins, and you will obey him as the Lord of your life, then you have eternal life. You are saved. Most people, unless the Lord's done a work in our lives, we're not even really, don't even really know that we are drowning in sin. And yet we look around in our world and it's just vile. Were any of y'all here for the, the testimony two Sundays ago? We learned about the human trafficking in India. Like, that's it. That's sin minus Jesus. It always descends. So how do we warn people? That's what I, I was talking about, the gospel. It begins not with Jesus saves, but it begins with there's a holy God. We warn with the word, and we teach with the word. I love this word proclaim that he opens up with. Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim because there's no room for undercover Christians in the kingdom. Undercover, undercover Christians are like soldiers that are hiding on the battlefield when the commander yells charge, and they just stay down. 
How can people turn to light if we won't shine? How can people know love if we won't love? How can people know you're a Christian unless you're willing to say that you love Jesus and serve him? Knowing that you're a great person and a super nice girl and a super nice guy is not saving. And it's not the gospel. But knowing who you serve presents the gospel. Colossians 1, 28, second half. Why are we warning with the Bible? Why are we teaching with Scripture? With all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's the goal. Paul knows he's going to stand before God. He knows that he'll be held accountable to those he was discipling. And he doesn't want to present baby Christians. He wants to present Christians that are steadfast in the word of God, Christians that don't back down, Christians that when there's a vacuum and there's a darkness that presents itself, they stand and they suffer like Christ for the sake of the gospel. Verse 29, for this I toil, I work, I strive, struggling with all his energy, reference back to verse 11, that he powerfully works in me. A shepherd cares for his flock. And there is no one in here that isn't called to be a disciple maker. Even if you're not called to hold in a microphone, even if you're not called to standing on a stage or having a YouTube channel or one of those things, you are called to exemplify Jesus, to follow his great commission. That's us. I used to have a Bible study in Destin, Florida. It was really cool. Handful of guys, me, Taco Bell. It was awesome. And I left behind a leader, one of our youth leaders, and he was going to run it because I was leaving. And I told him three or four times, I was like, look, I know when you get together, the temptation is just to play card games and goof off and everything. And that's all great. Do that stuff. Shoot each other with guns and, you know, have a blast. Nerf guns in case you're worried. I said, but don't stop having the Bible study when you get together. Whatever you do, don't fall into just the fun. Keep scripture front and center. And I kid you not, it was probably two, three weeks after I left. Scripture went out, and it was just hanging out with the guys. And those guys have gone everywhere else except towards Jesus in their lives. Scripture has to be the center. That call has to reign in us. Queen Elizabeth I led with the word of God. It's kind of cool that she defeated the Spanish Armada. It was like a surprise attack. Go read about it. Pretty cool. She was fantastic at diplomacy. She maintained peace inside a very, very divided country. She somehow navigated these troubled waters well between 
the Catholicism and the Protestantism. Between wars, the War of Roses had just ended, and she's trying to tie everything together, and she led with incredible wisdom. She created an environment where the church thrived and where, just for fun, the arts thrived. And it's because she wasn't led with human wisdom. It's because she held the word of God close to her chest and found delight in it above all things. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. And as we grow as men and women of God, I pray, Lord, that your word would become our delight. Just like David says in Psalm 119, over and over and over and over again, let your word become our delight. Lord, I pray that we will steward your church with the word, that we will expand the knowledge of who you are with the word. And Father, Lord, I pray that we will mature other believers in the word. And Father, let it begin with our being washed in your word. Thank you, Jesus, who came and revealed yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.